Don't let diaper rash come between you and your baby. Diaper rash can be one of the worst experiences your little one has to go through, and keeping their delicate skin happy and healthy shouldn't require a spatula to apply thick, goopy treatments that can be just as irritating and uncomfortable as the diaper rash. Instead, try Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant, free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide. It was developed by a mom who is also a doctor when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash. Use just a small amount of Dr. Mom Butt Balm to help soothe your baby's skin and feel good about making the right choice. Nothing comes between you and your baby, not even diaper rash. Check out Dr. Mom Butt Balm, available on Amazon or walmart.com. Back in the day when my girls were born, it was not easy to share photos and videos with loved ones, but you have a fantastic option available, the Family Album app. The Family Album app was created in 2015 and has operated in the long term to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with loved ones. It's a totally secure personal haven for your family's memories. I love that there's no third-party ads, no unwanted eyes. Now, let me share some of the great features that make the Family Album app a go-to app. First off, the app automatically sorts photos and videos by month, allowing you to swipe back in time and see how your child has grown. No more scrolling through endless feeds or searching through folders. Another cool feature about the Family Album app is you can order eight free photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. It's really nice to have some tangible pictures to hold onto or share to document each month of your baby's life. Plus, the Family Album app has unlimited storage and it is totally free. Yes, you heard that right. No more worrying about running out of space or being bombarded by ads when you're just trying to relive those heartwarming moments. So if you are still trying to use other messaging apps for your kids' photos, it is time to level up your family photo game with a free photo sharing app. Head over to the App Store today, search Family Album, it's all one word, download the app and start creating a legacy of love one photo at a time. In this episode, you are going to learn about preterm premature rupture of membranes. Welcome to the All About Pregnancy and Birth podcast. I'm Dr. Nicole Calloway-Rankins, a board-certified OBGYN who's been in practice for nearly 15 years. I've had the privilege of helping over 1,000 babies into this world, and I'm here to help you be calm, confident, and empowered to have a beautiful pregnancy and birth. Quick note, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Check out the full disclaimer at drnicolerankins.com forward slash disclaimer. Now let's get to it. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. This is episode number 165. Thank you for being here with me today. So this is the third episode in a series about preterm birth. The first episode, episode 163, was about risk factors for preterm birth. Episode 164 was about preterm labor, which accounts for 40 to 50% of preterm birth. And in that episode, you learn what it is, how to recognize it, how it's treated. So definitely go back and listen to those two episodes if you haven't. And in this episode, you're going to be learning about PPROM, which stands for preterm premature rupture of membranes or preterm pre-labor rupture of membranes. And that accounts for about 20 to 30% of preterm births. So preterm labor and PPROM together account for most cases of preterm birth. So in this episode, you're going to learn about risk factors for PPROM. You're going to learn how we diagnose it. It's actually not always straightforward. You learn about the management and then the typical clinical course of what happens if your water breaks and you're preterm. Now, before we get into the episode, I want to give a big listener shout out to all of you who messaged me last week when the podcast episode didn't come out on Tuesday as scheduled. 
we had a little human error on our side, which happens. Nobody's perfect. But the reason I knew about it is because folks folks reached out and said, hey, where is the episode? So thank you to all of you loyal listeners who spoke up and let me know that you look forward to the episode being released on Tuesdays and that you missed it. It really did warm my heart. All right, so let's hop into the episode about PPROM. So PPROM, again, stands for preterm, premature, rupture of membranes, that's P-P-R-O-M, or preterm, pre-labor, rupture of membranes. Um, Side note, PROM, pre-labor rupture of membranes, refers to when your membranes break before the onset of contractions in your full term, when you add that extra P, it's P-prom. And I'm going to say P-prom for the rest of the episode because it is too long to say all of that out. So P-prom refers to your water breaking before 37 weeks. And again, it's responsible for up to about a third of cases of preterm birth. Now, thankfully, it is not that common. It occurs in about 3% of pregnancies, happens in approximately 0.5% of pregnancies less than 27 weeks, and then in about 1% of pregnancies between 27 to 34 weeks and 1% of pregnancies between 34 to 37 weeks. And unfortunately, we do not know what causes it just like we don't know what causes preterm labor. However, we do know some risk factors. And many of the risk factors are similar to those for preterm birth. There are a few risk factors that are particularly strongly associated with PPROM, and I'm going to go through those now. The first one is genital tract infection. That is the single most common identifiable risk factor for for PPROM. And by genital tract infection, I mean um, gonorrhea, chlamydia, uh, bacterial vaginosis. Yeast infections do not do not um, count. They don't uh, increase the risk for PPROM. And this makes sense because when you have an infection, it can be more um, damaging to the membranes. It's not common, but it can increase the risk. So what I mean by that is that even if you have one of these infections like gonorrhea, chlamydia, bacterial vaginosis, uh, maybe even herpes, it doesn't mean that you are automatically going to have PPROM. It just means that you're at an increased risk. Now, the second most identifiable factor that is a strong risk factor for PPROM is, you might guess, a previous history of PPROM, okay? There is one study that showed that those who have a history of PPROM that led to preterm birth, they have a three-fold higher risk of PPROM in a next pregnancy compared to those who don't have a history of PPROM. It's still low, so if you have a history of PPROM in this particular study, your risk in the next pregnancy was 13.5%, and that was compared to 4% in the general population. And if you have a risk of PPROM, you're also at a higher risk of having a very premature PPROM in the next pregnancy, so before 28 weeks. The absolute number is low, so 1.8%. If you had PPROM before, that in the next pregnancy, there's a 1.8% chance that you'll have PPROM before 28 weeks. So not likely to happen, but it is much higher than those who don't have a history of PPROM. It's only 0.13% in that population. Now, the third risk factor that is associated with PPROM is bleeding during your pregnancy. So first trimester vaginal bleeding is associated with a small but statistically significant increased risk of PPROM. And if you have bleeding in more than one trimester, it can increase the risk by three to seven fold. I don't want to scare you though. Remember that three to seven fold, you have to look back and think about what the absolute risk is. And the absolute risk of having PPROM just because you have vaginal bleeding is very, very small, well less than 1%. But when you can do like 0.1 to 0.3, that's going to be three times, but it's still an overall low number. This And and in fact, bleeding in pregnancy is so common that we don't necessarily like 
raise red flags in our mind just because you have bleeding that you're going to be at a higher risk for PPROM. I'm just telling you what some of the data shows. And then the final strong risk factor for PPROM is smoking. Smoking can increase the risk by two to fourfold compared with non-smokers and why this happens is not clear. Expecting parents who are looking for great nursery decor, this message is for you. As you prepare for the beautiful journey ahead, let Home Threads be your partner in creating a serene nest for your growing family. At HomeThreads.com, explore a collection designed for comfort and style during this special time. From cozy nursery essentials to soothing rocking chairs, Home Threads has everything to create the perfect home for your little one and always at the best value. If you like unique items, then you definitely need to check out Home Threads. We got a silver picture frame from Home Threads that is absolutely beautiful. It's one of those timeless classic items that will last for years to come and it fits in any space in your home. Be sure to visit homethreads.com forward slash Dr. Nicole today and receive a code for 15% off your first order. Home Threads, love where you live. Okay, so how do we diagnose PROM? So the classic presentation of water breaking is sudden gush of fluid, soaks through the clothes. And this is whether, whether it's um, preterm or term. However, both preterm and term, that actually may not always be the case. Many folks often describe leaking just small amounts of fluid, either small amounts continuously or intermittently leaking fluid or a little bit here, a little bit there. So actually it is not always as straightforward as you might think to diagnose that the water is broken. So typically how it happens if someone comes in to the hospital and for the most part, people tend to be evaluated on labor and delivery, especially if they're preterm and they think their water is broken as opposed to the office. But either way, the the evaluation is pretty similar. So the first thing we're going to do is just look and see what we see. Like sometimes it is obvious you're sitting in a pool of fluid. It's obvious that fluid is coming out of your body. In that case, it is straightforward to diagnose. Okay. Now, if it is not so straightforward, then we go through a process and that process is as follows. We start with, and I should say, I should back up and say every place may be a little bit different in how they approach things. This is kind of a a generalization about how practice is done. Also uh, a little bit of a generalization or combination of how I've seen things done over my 15 plus years of practice. So this is generally how it's done. And I've been at, you know, five or six different hospitals, but it may be slightly different depending on where you are. Okay. So we're going to start with a sterile speculum exam where we look inside your vagina to see if we see the fluid. If your amniotic fluid is leaking, you can actually directly see it leaking from the opening of the cervix and it may pool in the back of the vagina. And if it's not immediately visible, we may ask you to cough, typically cough, and just even that sensation of coughing can cause fluid to leak from the cervical os and we can see it there. Now, typically we're going to test that fluid to confirm what we see, that it actually is amniotic fluid, unless it's really, really obvious. Sometimes you look inside and you see it's like pouring out amniotic fluid. But if you don't, or if we don't rather, then we typically start with something called nitrazine paper. Nitrazine paper is a little strip. It looks like a little yellow strip of paper, and it's used to test the pH of vaginal fluid. We may get a little Q-tip swab and get some of the contents of the fluid in your vagina, or if we see fluid out on your skin, we may just touch it to your skin where we see fluid. And nitrazine is a pH indicator dye, and it indicates the pH in roughly the 4.5 to 7.5 range. And pH is a measure of how acidic things are, okay? So amniotic fluid usually has a pH that's higher. It's more alkaline. So it's in the range of seven to 7.3, 
whereas the typical vaginal pH is much lower, 3.8 to 4.2. So when we swab vaginal secretions, if it's amniotic fluid, it's going to turn that nitrazine paper pretty blue, like bright blue. If it's not amniotic fluid, when you swab it, it just stays kind of yellow. There is kind of an intermediate zone where it looks, eh, maybe is it a little bit turned blue? Is it not turned blue? And in that case, we'll do additional tests. But it can be helpful if it's obviously blue or if it's obviously not blue, okay? Also note that the pH of amniotic fluid is different than the pH of vaginal uh, secretions, which is different than the pH of urine. So it's going to help us determine between those three things. Now, false negative and false positive nitrazine test can occur in up to about 5% of cases. False negative results can occur if there's just not a lot of fluid there. So maybe we didn't get a good sample. And then false positive results can occur if there are a lot of alkaline fluids. And alkaline fluids are blood. Blood is an alkaline fluid. Semen is an alkaline fluid. So those are things that can turn it falsely positive. So that's the nitrazine test. Now, another test that can be done is something called ferning. And what that is, is we take a swab of the fluid and put it on a slide. You're supposed to allow it to dry for about 10 minutes. Uh, and then when you see it, when it's dried, amniotic fluid dries in a characteristic pattern. It's called ferning. It actually looks really pretty when you see it under a microscope. Okay. Now you have to be careful about this because cervical mucus can also fern, but it has a different appearance than amniotic fluid ferning. And you also have to be careful because um, some hospitals, a lot of hospitals don't do this test anymore because when you do test in the hospital, you have to make sure that they're standardized and they can be repeated and everyone who's doing it is trained and all of those things. And that can be a little bit of a challenge. You also have to have the microscope um, to be uh, carefully monitored and, and make sure it's standardized and all of those things. So our hospital does not permit physicians to do ferning anymore because they couldn't do quality control for it. And a lot of hospitals are like that. It's often done in the office though, if you go to see if your water is broken in the office. So in addition to the nitrazine, in addition to looking in the vagina, seeing if we see fluid, there are also some commercial tests that can check for specific proteins that we know are in amniotic fluid and um, to look to make, to see if your water is broken. One that we use in our hospital is something called Amnesure, and it looks for a particular protein in the vaginal fluid that is present once the water is broken. So the way this test works is that it's a sterile swab, little tiny Q-tip that's inserted into the vagina. You leave it there for one minute. Then you place the little swab in a special solvent, and then you dip the Amnesure test strip into the vial. It kind of looks like a pregnancy test, sort of. And then it's one or two lines, and you have to wait for 10 minutes to make sure that the test has been done. So if it's one line, then it's a negative test result for amniotic fluid. If it's two lines, then it's a positive test result that there is amniotic fluid in the vagina. This test can also sometimes have false positives, but it's not as nearly as common as the nitrazine test. It's also not affected by semen and it's not affected by trace amounts of blood. So we in our hospital use Amnesure. There are other tests with different names. I think there's one called ROM plus another one called uh, PROM. So there are other tests, tests like that that are available, but those are tests that are often used as well to confirm the diagnosis because we really want to be sure if we think your water is broken early, because it's going to have big implications for how we manage your pregnancy, you're going to hear that coming up. Now, ultrasound can be used, but ultrasound actually is not definitively diag diagnostic of your water breaking. A lot of people, when their water breaks, they will have oligohydramnios, which is low amniotic fluid. 
However, if your fluid was on the higher side of normal, or if you're not leaking a ton of fluid, your fluid may not necessarily be low, even though your water is broken. So ultrasound can be helpful, but even if the fluid is low, it is not definitively diagnostic of your water being broken. So don't expect that you're automatically going to get an ultrasound just to check to see if your water is broken. Cause again, it's not 100%. So those are the things that we typically do, okay? Now, in extremely hard-to-diagnose cases, back in the day, we used to do something called a tampon test. I have not seen this done in years and years and years. But what that is is that um, dye is instilled into the uterus, like through the abdomen. Uh, dye is instilled into the uterus, and then a tampon is placed in the vagina. Wait 20 minutes, and the tampon is removed, if the tampon has colored staining on it from the dye, then that indicates leakage of amniotic fluid. Again, this has not been used very um, recently just because those other tests that I talked about, like the Amnesure, are very good at determining if your water is broken. But they can be used in very, very difficult cases. Also, sometimes we may admit people to the hospital if it's not straightforward, watch and see for a day or so to kind of evaluate and make sure we confirm the correct diagnosis because, again, it has implications for how we manage your pregnancy going forward. Now, unfortunately, there are no home tests in order to diagnose your water being broken in the U.S. Apparently, there is one in the U.K., but there are no home tests like home pregnancy tests kind of thing. Um, available in the U.S. Okay, now really quickly some other things that may cause fluid leaking or may cause you to suspect that your water is broken. So things that we'll ask about um, when you come in and say, hey, I'm concerned, I think I'm leaking fluid. The biggest one is urinary incontinence. It's really, 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 really common to leak urine during pregnancy it is so, 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 so common. So do not feel alone in that regard. And the difference is with urine leaking, it's typically going to be typically going to be like a one-time thing. And then you won't continue to see leaking after that. When the water breaks, it generally continues to, to leak. Even if it's not a continuous flow, it's like, oh, I had a little bit, then I had some more leaking, then I had some more leaking and you don't have any control over it. It's just coming out of your body without any control. So that's how it's differentiated from urine. The other differentiating factor is that amniotic fluid has no odor, no odor at all, whereas urine smells like urine, okay? And then for vaginal fluid or vaginal secretions, a lot of people have increased vaginal secretions during pregnancy. And that can be a normal physiolo a physiologic change that happens during pregnancy. But your water, the amniotic fluid, your water breaking, we, we call it your water breaking because it literally has the consistency of water. Like it's, it's a thin fluid, whereas vaginal discharge usually may have, it can look whitish. It can be yellowish. Um, even if it has a little bit of thickness to it, anything that has any thickness or mucus consistency to it is not your water breaking. Amniotic fluid is literally like water. Okay. So those are the two most common things that it may be confused with. And don't feel bad if you're unsure, if you're ever concerned, just go in to, to be checked out because again, it's not always straightforward and, um, you want to know for sure so you can get the appropriate treatment. Okay, so speaking of treatment, how do we manage folks who have water that's broken early, who have P-PROM? So I'm going to talk about managing P-PROM for a pregnancy that is considered viable, meaning that it the baby could survive if the baby was born. So that means between 23 and 36 weeks. I'm not going to talk about P-PROM before viability, so before 23 weeks. I'm talking because the management is different. I'm talking about P-PROM specifically for a viable pregnancy, so that's going to be between 23 weeks and 36 weeks. And what we're looking for in the management is deciding whether or not we can manage pregnancies expectantly, meaning we wait and let the baby stay inside the uterus because despite all of the advances that we've made in medicine and in NICU care, there is nothing like the environment of the uterus to grow a baby. 
inside of a uterus is almost always going to be the best environment. We, we just have not figured out how to duplicate that outside of the body. So the options are manage expectantly to help the baby grow longer, or do we need to induce labor? And the things that we are looking for or considering are how far along is the pregnancy. Um, definitely if the pregnancy is early, we want to get as much time in utero as possible. The further along you get, then it's um, the better the outcomes will be if the baby's born. So we have to consider gestational age. We have to consider whether or not there's infection present. If there's infection present, then the safest thing is the baby to be for the baby to be on the outside. The baby ex- existing in an infectious environment is not healthy and could cause um, severe problems for mom and baby. Actually, we have to look at whether or not labor is happening. If labor is happening, we may try and stop it, at least for the benefit of steroids. I'm going to talk about steroids in a minute, but if labor is continuing, then, um, we may not necessarily, uh, do, we may not be able to do expected management because labor is progressing. We look at the overall well-being of the baby. How is the heart rate tracing looking on the monitor? Does the baby's heart rate tracing look reassuring? And we also want to look at the presentation. Is the baby breech or not? That's to determine whether or not vaginal or cesarean birth is an option. And then finally, if you're preterm, are you in a hospital that has an appropriate level of NICU care? Not every hospital has a NICU that can take babies of all gestational ages. Neonatal care tends to be a regionalized thing where you have hospitals, you have one or two hospitals that can take babies of all ages, and then other hospitals can take babies up to a certain age. I happen to work at a hospital. It's a level three NICU. We can take care of of just about everything. The highest level is level four, where they can do complex surgery and things like that. So we also have to make sure you're at a hospital that can take care of the baby if need be, because although we can do neonatal transports, like if you go to a hospital and that hospital doesn't have a NICU available and you happen to deliver, we can do, like the baby can be stabilized and do a neonatal transport, but it's really better for the baby and the care that they receive if they go, transport happens in utero as opposed to delivering in a hospital that doesn't have that NICU care, okay? Okay, so we look at all of those things, and again, if there is infection, if baby's not looking well, if there is placenta abruption, any signs of distress, then the right thing is probably going to be delivery. Then if not, then we're going to do expectant management, and we do expectant management up to a certain gestational age. That part is a little bit controversial, so I'm going to split it up a bit. So it's very clear that before 34 weeks, everyone does expectant management, where We want to keep you pregnant. We do our best to support you staying pregnant until you get to 34 weeks. Now, some hospitals, some doctors will recommend inducing labor at 34 weeks. That's what we did for years and years and years and years and years. Up until the last couple of years, some newer data came out and there's um, now a change in how we manage timing of delivery between 34 and 37 weeks. And I will get into that in just a second. But in general, before 34 weeks, we always do expected management. And what expected management is, is a series of things in order to help support this early baby in the event the baby is born early. So the first thing we're going to do is administer uh, antenatal corticosteroids. So corticosteroids are steroids, and we definitely always give them for pregnancies after 23 weeks if baby is going to be born early. Antenatal corticosteroids is one of the biggest advances in care of premature babies that has led to dramatic improvements of babies health and well-being. If you are ever in a position where your doctor is talking to you about you're having something going on with your pregnancy and recommending steroids, I 1000% say accept the steroids because studies have shown that steroids can reduce the risk of problems from 30 to 60%. And by problems, I mean reduce the risk of neonatal death, reduce respiratory distress syndrome, reduce intraventricular hemorrhage, which is bleeding in the brain, 
reduce necrotizing into chorolitis, which is a um, infection of the intestines where part of the intestines die. It can reduce the need for respiratory support like ventilation when you have steroids. So steroids are one of the most like miraculous things about NICU medicine to happen in the last 30 years. Actually, NICU medicine is one of the, the, um, the areas of medicine that has shown such dramatic in, involvement or, or, or improvement, I should say. I think I mentioned in the preterm birth, in one of the prior episodes that like John F. Kennedy's baby who was born at 34 weeks was, uh, ended up dying. That would almost be unheard of today. It would be extremely, extremely rare for a 34 week baby to die because we've made such advances. So, um, the, and the steroids that we specifically use are two different ones because there are lots of different types of steroids, but there are only two that are used in, for this particular, um, indication because these are the only two that cross the placenta. One is beta-methasone and one is dexamethasone. They are IM injections, meaning intramuscular. The beta-methasone is two shots given 24 hours apart. Sometimes we accelerate the second dose to 12 hours if we think delivery is going to happen soon. But in general, beta-methasone is two shots given 24 hours apart. Dexamethasone is four shots given 12 hours apart. So they happen over the course of about 48 hours. Now, there have been multiple studies and things looking at how frequently do we give it. We used to give multiple doses over the course of weeks, but we found over time that really one dose or one course over that 48 hours works well, and we can repeat it one time if it's been more than 14 days since the first course, but we really don't repeat it more than once. And you only want to repeat it if you think there's a high risk of delivery happening. So expectant management, one of the major components is antenatal corticosteroids. All right. Hey, so you made it this far in the episode and I'm thinking it's because you enjoyed this podcast. Well, if that's the case, then I have a favor to ask. Creating and producing the All About Pregnancy and Birth podcast has been one of the greatest joys of my life. I'm so grateful to have each and every one of you on this journey with me. Your support and engagement means the world to me, and it's what helps keep this podcast going. But here's the thing. Producing a podcast involves time, effort, and resources from recording equipment to an editor, hosting fees, coordinating guests, countless hours spent researching and crafting content. It all adds up. And that's where I could use your support. I've never wanted to turn all about pregnancy and birth into a paywall. I want it to remain accessible to everyone. That's why I've set up a way for you to support the show financially if you're able and willing. If this podcast has helped you during your pregnancy, your birth, or your life, I'm asking you to consider contributing to the show. Your support will help cover production and team costs and ensure that I can continue delivering the episodes you love. So in the month of March, head to drnicolerankins.com forward slash support and contribute whatever you can. Your support, no matter how big or small, makes a significant impact. It helps us continue delivering high quality content and ensures the future of all about pregnancy and birth. Again, that's drnicolerankins.com forward slash support. Thank you so much for being part of the All About Pregnancy and Birth community. Now back to the show. Next thing for PPROM is that we do prophylactic antibiotic therapy. And what that is, prophylactic means prevent. So the goal of that of the antibiotics is to reduce infection and increase something called the latency period. And the latency period is the period of time between water breaking and labor starting. All right. And multiple studies have shown across close to 7,000 women that prophylactic antibiotics help improve outcomes. It reduces chorioamnionitis, which is an infection of the membranes in the placenta. It reduces babies being born within 48 hours, also within seven days. So it gives that time for the steroids to take effect. It reduces neonatal infection. It reduces neonatal oxygen use. It reduces the incidence of abnormal brain ultrasound after the baby is born. So we will recommend that in the setting of PPROM, you get latency antibiotics and it's just a seven day course. 
And it's a combination of two antibiotics. One is azithromycin or erythromycin. That's one class. And the second one is a penicillin medicine. It starts with IV ampicillin and then transitions to oral amoxicillin for five days. So it's a seven-day course of antibiotics, and we do that before 34 weeks, all right? So the data shows that this is helpful if your water breaks before 34 weeks, between 34 and 30, after 34 weeks, I should say in general, we don't do it. Okay, so next up is tocolysis. Tocolysis is... Stopping contractions, lysis is stopped, toco is contractions, stopping contractions. So in the setting of PPROM, we typically start tocolysis to help delay delivery for at least 48 hours to allow for those steroids to get into the baby system. Because again, we know that there's, those steroids have the biggest, most positive effect. So we want to do tocolysis. And I talked about the tocolytic agents in the episode on preterm labor. And uh, we, we want to give those in order to get those steroids on board. And they can also be used to reduce the risk of delivery if you're being transported to a facility that has a higher level of care. We don't do tocolysis for more than 48 hours, though. Okay, don't do it for more than 48 hours. We also don't do it if there's obvious infection, if there's bleeding, if there's a reason or that we know that the baby's going to deliver, then we don't do tocolysis in those instances. Okay, final few things that we do for expectant management. In the beginning, you're going to get a course of magnesium sulfate for neuroprotection. That's through the IV. It helps to protect the brain. It helps reduce the risk of cerebral palsy. We like to give it around the 12 hours of delivery that we anticipate delivery is going to happen. So at some point, if you deliver before 32 weeks, you're going to get that magnesium sulfate. You may get it a couple times. So if you come in, we give it during that initial course. And then later when you go into labor, if it's before 32 weeks, we'll restart it again. But that magnesium helps to protect the baby's brain. Lots of studies have shown that. And then we're also just going to monitor the baby while you're in the hospital. And I'm going to talk about why you need to be in the hospital when your water breaks in just a minute. But while you're in the hospital, we do non-stress tests daily. A non-stress test is when you get put on the monitor and we check out the baby's heart rate, make sure the baby looks okay. Non-stress tests are not good at predicting infection, but they are good at looking at the baby and seeing if the baby's healthy. If the NST looks good, then we know that the baby is in good shape, okay? We also check for fetal growth periodically every two to three weeks, and we monitor moms for any signs of infection, so elevated temperature, tenderness pressing on the uterus, that can be a sign of chorioamnionitis, we look at mom's heart rate, baby's heart rate. If those are very high, those can be signs of infection. If there are a lot of contractions, those are, those are signs of infection. So those are the things that we look at. And of course, we also screen for any infection as well. When you come in, we would look for gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis. We look for HIV, bacterial vaginosis, trichomonas, um, just to make sure that we treat any of those things that are there. All right, so I talked about hospital management and almost all physicians will recommend that once your water is broken, if you are over 23 weeks, you stay in the hospital until delivery. So it's a potential that you could be in the hospital for quite some time. There have only been two randomized trials that evaluated the safety of outpatient versus inpatient management for women with PROM. They were small trials, less than a hundred between them. And although they didn't find a big difference in outcomes, except that the home group had lower cost, and that makes sense because they're at home, the trials just weren't big enough to look for any meaningful differences. Also of note in those trials, I believe four or five people delivered outside of the hospital. Actually, I take that back. It was three. Three women delivered outside of the hospital unexpectedly, which could be problematic for a preterm baby. You really want to be in the hospital and in a hospital with an appropriate level of care if you have a preterm baby. Now, in another study, a retrospective study where they looked back, the first two studies were randomized trial and a retrospective study of about 200 women with PPROM who were managed as outpatients. Um, 12 had severe complications of fetal death, placenta abruption, umbilical cord prolapse, delivery outside of the hospital, neonatal death, which is death within the first 28 days of life, 
So really looking at the available evidence that we have, we really recommend inpatient stay in the hospital management for PPROM. I know that I have seen things turn so quickly for women who have PPROM, round on them, go see them. Hey, how's it doing? How, how's it going? Everything's good. And within an hour or two, full-blown labor. Okay. So you really want to be in the hospital, especially if your baby is early, if you have PPROM. Under rare circumstances where we do home management, you would have to live very close to the hospital, um, you know, be able to get in quickly, all of those things. So expect that if your water breaks early, the safer place is going to be in hospital management. Okay. So that is expectant management. It's in the hospital, steroids, antibiotics, monitoring. And I'm going to talk about the timing of delivery in just a second. I'm going to quickly touch upon some things that we know don't work. There have been in cases of extremely preterm, like not viable pregnancy, some experimental treatments of something called tissue sealants, where we try to use special glues to stop the fluid from leaking, like try to seal over the amniotic fluid. Um, that has only been seen in a couple of case reports. I could not find a lot on that at all. So we don't know the safety or efficacy of that. And it was always in pregnancies that were very early, like 19, 20 weeks. So that is something that we don't do. Also something called amnio infusion. Amnio infusion is something we do in labor is essentially after the water breaks, Sometimes it can cause compression of the cord and that can cause changes in the heart rate. We essentially put the water back into or fluid back into the uterus. Usually it's saline, just normal saline, and it can help reduce those changes in the heart rate. It's not something we do in the setting of PPROM. There are a couple of small studies that have shown that amnio infusion has helped. And this was amnio infusion through the belly not through the vagina. In labor, we do it through the vagina. So this is trans-abdominal amnioinfusion has shown to help in some small studies, very small studies, but it's not something that's done commonly, okay? So let's talk about timing of delivery. As I said, this has changed and is a little bit, I don't want to say controversial, but you'll see like differing opinions on timing of delivery. Typically for years and years and years in my career, it was 34 weeks. If your water broke and you were preterm, if you, once you got to 34 weeks, then we induced your labor. Okay. Um, so anybody after 34 weeks, if your water broke, then we induced your labor. However, there has been, there have been some studies that have come out that have shown that outcomes can be improved if we wait a little bit longer, and that is wait up to 37 weeks. So in one study, which compared expectant management with 37 weeks to a planned early birth, there was an increased risk of um, several outcomes in the planned early birth group. So in the planned early birth group, there was an increased risk of respiratory distress syndrome, increased need for mechanical ventilation, increased need for admission to NICU, increased neonatal death. And you can ex expect that in a way because the baby is born early. And as I said, we just don't have the same environment on the outside as the uterus in terms of supporting a baby that is early. And for the mother, planned early birth resulted in a lower rate of chorioamnionitis. It also resulted in a shorter length of hospital stay. That makes sense. If you induce early, you're not going to be in the hospital as long. It did result, though, in a higher cesarean delivery rate and as a result, a higher frequency of endometritis, which is an infection of the uterus, um, infection of the endometrial lining, the lining of the uterus, typically related to C-section. And then in another study, which looks specifically at the group from 34 to 36 weeks. So in that last data that I just told you, that was anybody who was less than 37. In another study that looked at 34 to 36 weeks, the two approaches resulted in similar rates of outcomes for um, babies. So similar rates of infection for baby, respiratory distress syndrome, um, stillbirth, a little bit higher with immediate delivery, but not statistically significant. 
And then similar, slightly increased risk of cesarean birth for mom. Um, it did reduce the risk of bleeding if there was immediate delivery and did reduce the risk of chorioamnionitis infection of the membranes. Okay. So looking at all this data now between 34 and 37 weeks, we say it's an individual decision and weigh the risk and benefits. Some people have criticized the studies saying that it combines lots of different people, that kind of thing. But in general, it is not unreasonable to wait longer for delivery beyond 34 weeks. What we do in our hospital is we have kind of come to a, and I should say every doctor is still a little bit different, but in general, we typically say 35 weeks. And we say 35 weeks because 35 weeks is when baby can go home with, with the parents. Under 35 weeks, baby is automatically going to the NICU. That's just the policy at my hospital, at a lot of hospitals. But at 35 weeks, baby is eligible to stay with mom in the room as long as baby's big enough and doing well. So typically in our hospital, we say 35 weeks if you've been in the hospital for PPROM. All right, so let's wrap up with speaking of being in the hospital. What is the typical clinical course of someone who has PPROM? Well, first of all, fluid stopping, like the fluid not leaking or cessation of the fluid leaking is rare. You will just continue to leak fluid until the baby is born. The fluid comes from the baby making urine. The baby will continue to make urine. The fluid will continue to come. In rare circumstances, and I mean rare, the membranes will seal back over. I've probably seen that happen twice that I can think of in my entire, you know, 15 plus years of practice. So the membrane sealing on their own is very, very rare. It is associated with the good prognosis if that happens, but it's rare. So typically you're going to continue to leak fluid. Now, how long will you leak fluid? How long will you stay pregnant once your water is broken? All right. Now, one study of about 240 folks who had PPROM, the median time, so if you line everybody up, the middle time to delivery was about six days. Okay. And in this study, 27% of folks delivered within 48 hours, 56% within seven days, 76% within 14 days, and 86% within 21 days. So most people are going to deliver within three weeks and even half will deliver within seven days, despite all of our interventions. I find that if folks make it to seven days, then after seven days, they tend to go a little bit longer. Um, but don't expect that you're going to be pregnant for months and months. That's not typical. Most folks are going to deliver within three weeks at, at the latest or so. The most common thing that happens is chorioamnionitis, which is infection of membranes in the placenta. As you might imagine, that is going to happen because the bacteria all of our vaginas have bacteria. That is a normal function of the vagina. The membranes keep that bacteria from infecting things. When the membranes are broken, that pathway is available and eventually chorioamnionitis will, will develop. There is also a higher risk in PPROM of the baby not being in a head down presentation. So if the baby is not head down, when you come to the hospital, very often they are going to not go into a head down position. So they're going to stay breech or they're going to stay transverse if that's how they were when the water broke. And that's because there's going to be a low amount of fluid and they just don't have enough room. They can't turn. So there's no like space for them in the fluid to turn. So there is a higher risk of PPROM of the baby being in a non-head down position. And then finally, as far as how babies do, what is the outcome of babies um, who are born as a result of PPROM? It's really related to to the gestational age at birth and whether or not you got steroids. The neonatologist will go over all of those numbers and risk and all of those things with you when you are admitted to the hospital. Okay, so just to recap, PPROM is preterm, pre-labor, rupture of membranes. It is when your water breaks before 37 weeks. It causes about one-third of preterm birth. We diagnose it by a sterile speculum exam, looking to see if we see the fluid. We do the nitrazine test. We do the amnesure test or a similar test in order to confirm that the fluid is, is broken for sure. 
Um, Ultrasound is not necessarily terribly helpful, but it can be used. Management involves being in the hospital. Steroids and antibiotics are going to be the two things that are most important. We're also going to do that magnesium to protect the baby's brain as well as tocolysis, stopping contractions definitely at least for 48 hours to get those steroids on board. And then delivery is typically going to be anywhere between 34 to 37 weeks. Or before that, if infection develops, labor happens, placenta abruption, that type of thing. Now, if your baby is born early, do check out episode 76 of the podcast where I talk with the neonatologist about questions to ask about a NICU baby. I've had so many people come back to me and say that they appreciated being able to go back to that that episode when their baby was in the NICU. Okay, so there you have it. Do me a solid, share the podcast with a friend if you like it. It helps me to reach more people and just fulfill my passion and purpose of serving as many pregnant folks as possible. So share it with a friend. Also subscribe to the podcast and Apple podcast or wherever you're listening to me right now. And be sure to hop on my email list. That's drnicolerankins.com forward slash email. I send weekly newsletter with some gems of information. It's a great place to get additional pregnancy and birth Um, stuff, inspiration, all kinds of great stuff and not be on social media. So if you're not like a huge social media person, then my email list is a great place to be. That's drnicolerankins.com forward slash email. I also do special offers to the email list. So do check that out. So that's it for this episode. Do come on back next week and remember that you deserve a beautiful pregnancy and birth. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.